You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM, Hi FM and this is the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. Welcome to the show once again, bringing you the latest, greatest, and best in Jewish current affairs and politics. As I say, good to be with you once again. And the theme for this show. We are the new Blue Review, so uh, we thought we'd do something about water. Water, water everywhere, and hopefully a little bit to drink by the time that you are done with this particular show. Water, of course, a crucial issue all over the world, but uh, especially in Israel. And so we thought we would get on the show a real solid water expert, someone who really knows what goes down your toilet and comes out of your tap all at the same time. We're speaking to Clive Lipchin today. He is from the Arava Environmental Center, and he's the director of Transboundary Water Research. Clive, welcome to the new Blue Review. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Benji. A pleasure to, uh, to be speaking with you today. How does someone become a water expert? <laughs> well, <laughs> you basically have to appreciate that water is the most fundamental resource that we have. And uh, secondly, you have to uh, study it like anything else. I mean, uh, I got into water um, actually because when I was looking for a research topic for my PhD, uh, I said to myself, what's the most important environmental issue that Israel and the Middle East is going to be facing? And I immediately came across water. And I said, well, that's the issue that I need to be researching. And so it all really, really began from there. Wow, it's uh, quite an amazing thing actually to be involved with water and quite prescient. I mean, I guess uh, at some point people were more worried about oil and, and where it was going and there wasn't necessarily a lot being thought about water. And yet uh, it is kind of the global agenda item on various countries and cities and just ordinary people's agendas now. Right. I mean, the issue is I would say that the uh – Probably our, our most important environmental and, and social challenge for the 21st century is water. And the reason is that there's a growing level of awareness globally that we're facing a global water crisis. And the reason is, is that the populations are growing, water demand is growing, but the water supply is remaining stable and constant. And if anything is changing and becoming more unpredictable because of climate change, which is impacting the distribution of water around the planet. Now, before we get into the water issues, because there are many of them, obviously, on the table, can you just tell us a little bit about the Arava Institute and what does it do? Sure. So I work for the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. We are a non-profit NGO in Israel. And the Arava Institute um, is an academic and environmental research and development center. Um, basically, we have two main areas of activity. One is we are an environmental studies um, academic program. Uh, we are a, a partner uh, with Ben Gurion University of the Negev, and we offer basically the only interdisciplinary environmental studies program in Israel. And what is especially interesting about our program is, in addition to teaching about the environment from a multitude of disciplines, we also do it in a collaborative fashion, uh, given the transboundary nature of our resources here in Israel. And that means that we bring to the campus Students from Israel, Jordan, the Palestinian Authority, and all around the world. And these students come together, they study together, they learn together, um, and through studying and learning, they begin to understand the different um, perceptions and uh, narratives that, uh, you know, Israelis and Arabs have with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian, Israeli-Arab situation. And um, in terms of research, we take a similar 
um, approach by looking at transboundary issues. As I said, um, I focus on water, but uh, we also have research on energy with a strong focus on renewable energy. Uh, we do a lot of work in agriculture with a focus on sustainable and desert agriculture because the Arab Institute is located uh, in the Arab Desert, uh, not too far from Iraq. Um, and we also work on um, ecology, um, mostly again looking at desert systems, um, as well as providing uh, expertise in the area of water, energy, and food um, to developing countries, um, many of them actually coming from Africa, including South Africa. So it's very, very interesting you talk about the idea of water here being used as a way of, uh, and I guess the environment as well, as a way of promoting peace. I mean, water is one of those things in the Middle East that is kind of actually tended to war. Some people suggest that 1967, which is now coming up in 50 years ago, had to do with uh, water distribution. And, and you guys are kind of turning that on its head a little bit by, by trying to get people to engage, because I guess thinking something like the Jordan River is being used by Israel, the Jordanians and the Palestinians all at once. Right. Well, look, I mean, you don't look at it like this. Firstly, there's only so much water to go around. Uh, and if we're going to fight over it, at the end of the day, it's simply going to be a lose-lose situation. Water is, is a fundamental resource for survival, and uh, it's a resource that's simply not worth fighting over. There's no question that uh, there are tensions and disagreements around water resources that uh, happens in our part of the world and in many other parts of the world as well. But um, the evidence is overwhelmingly in the favor that when there is challenges to water management and dealing with water scarcity, the overarching um, response is actually to cooperate over water rather than to fight over it. And your program tries to bring people together to, to try and, in, and, and get that kind of attitude going. Exactly. And, and as I said, that's the way we do that is to focus on young people uh, and bring them, you know, to our campus, study the issues, and to study them jointly and understand at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't matter if one is Israeli or Palestinian, everybody needs to have access to a fresh, you know, safe uh, source of water. And has it had any effect, uh, people coming from Jordan, perhaps going back, getting into a government department, uh, you know, now you can have a, a warm referral, a, a direct line. Has that kind of effect happened because people are now studying together? Yeah, I mean, the way that we do our work, you know, it's like a ripple effect. Uh, we focus very much on the people-to-people interactions. And uh, the way that what happens is that you develop trust between people. But for us, you know, we use the environment, we use water specifically as a foundation to build trust amongst people that, you know, unfortunately don't really engage with one another on an equal level or have specific stereotypes about, you know, um, other people. But uh, so the environment and water is a very uh, good sort of common ground upon which everybody can have a conversation about. And so we use that as the bridge to build uh, relations. And that then, of course, can help you to expand into other areas uh, where obviously relations are also very critical. Like on the political sphere, of course. Now, water and the Israeli experience kind of become a bit of a fashionable topic, if you like, in the last few years. Uh, people, there's a new book I saw out uh, dealing with how Israel overcame some of its water challenges. Can you kind of sketch the geography, the landscape, if you like? What are the kind of things that are the water challenge in Israel and the surrounding region? Um, so... I would say one one could understand it from this perspective. Israel 
um, and again, the surrounding region, hydrologically, it's all really uh, one system. Our biggest, we have two, two major challenges. One <clears throat> is that uh, we only get water rainfall uh, in the very short winter season. So we are lucky uh, to get rainfall anywhere from three to four months after the, the whole year. Uh, the rest of the year is dry. Uh, but of course, we need water all year round. So one of our problems is uh, how do we make sure that the water we do get in the short winter season is going to be enough uh, for all of our needs all year round? Uh, and that primarily is a challenge uh, in terms of how we store water. So how do we capture uh, as much of the rainfall as possible, store it, and then have uh, enough uh, to provide for everyone over the year? The second challenge that Israel faces um, is that when it does rain, most of the rainfall is concentrated in the north of the country, in around the Sea of Galilee, the, the Lake Canaris. But we have, you know, need for water in the south as well, primarily for agriculture in the Negev. So the other challenge that we need to think about is how do you distribute water from where it occurs, in this case Israel's north, to where we need it, agriculture is in Israel's stuff. So in essence, you can sum up the challenges in how to effectively store water and then secondly, how to distribute water. So it's a storage and distribution challenge. So it was very interesting for me to see, and maybe this was something that I misunderstood, but is it illegal in Israel for individual citizens to actually collect water on their roofs and 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 that sort of thing? It's kind of completely run by the state as a as a way of dealing with the water crisis. Exactly. And actually, that's a very good way. It, it, it works very well for Israel. I'm not to, not to say that it doesn't, that it should or it, uh, work for every country. But in the case of Israel, uh, Israel has a very uh, state-driven, top-down uh, uh, concept of water management. Uh, and it works. It works because under a centralized system, uh, water is effectively managed, distributed uh, uh, efficiently to where it's, uh, it's needed. Um, and you, you're right, the state does not allow individuals uh, to capture water or to store water or to use water um, other than other than them getting a specific uh, permission or permit uh, to do so. Uh, the reason why this works in Israel is it's allowed Israel to develop very effective national water infrastructure um, that works very efficiently in moving water around and treating water um, and so on. So uh, in the case of, of, of Israel, um, uh, water is considered a, a public resource that's managed by the government uh, uh, with a public uh, welfare uh, uh, in mind. Yeah, it certainly is quite interesting if you hear, you know, a lot of debates in water nationalization versus privatization. Uh, this is quite a an interesting version, I guess, of that. So, I mean, if you are a drop of water and you fall from the sky into the Galilee in Israel, first of all, you make it onto the front page, right? If the Galilee goes up uh, by one centimeter, then that is legitimately front page news in Israel. Uh, what is your likely journey then as part of the state structure if you are this drop of water? So the, 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 the main uh, structure, the main, let's say, um, uh, network that was built by Israel, uh, which in essence remains as the, uh, the backbone of Israel's water uh, infrastructure, is the national water carrier, which means it was uh, essentially designed 
to take water out of the Sea of Galilee uh, and move it uh, to the south. Um, uh, so if you're a drop of water falling into Lake Chinera, uh either you stay in the lake, which is probably what you would like to do if you, uh, if you are uh, the fish living in the lake, uh, but most likely you'll be pumped out to the National Water Carrier, and from there you enter into the National Water Grid and you can land up in somebody's tap, you know, as far south as Beersheba or even Mitzvah on. So what are the kinds of other smaller things that you might see in Israel? I think people who are familiar with perhaps the Jewish National Fund and the tree planting would also know that they do a lot of these reservoirs. If you, if you drive in the south of Israel, you know, I think they have 126 all over the country and you, you're sort of driving along in the desert and you find one of these reservoirs. How, how did they kind of fit into the system in terms of what you're describing? Right. Well, actually, let, let's, take, let's, let's take another uh uh, take a bit of a step back. Today, Israel uh, is in a unique situation globally, and this is why you know many people uh, relate to Israel as a water, as a, as a global water power. Because today, Israel actually is less dependent on uh, water from the Sea of Galilee or from uh, groundwater resources. Um, we now have integrated into our national water grid. This again relates to the success of the state-sponsored approach. Uh, desalination of seawater from the Mediterranean coast. So if you are looking at where the water comes from now in Israel, uh, pretty much the water in your tap for drinking is actually not coming from the Sea of Galilee, it's coming from the Mediterranean Sea. And it's being desalinated by five of the world's largest desalination plants, um, bringing Israel to the point where about 70, 70 or even 80% of our possible water supply is coming from desalination facilities. And this has allowed Israel to become, in essence, independent from uh, the unpredictable rainfall patterns, from droughts, from climate change, and so on. So that's one uh, element uh, where Israel has a lot to, to offer in terms of how to out similar countries that potentially have uh, the uh, opportunity to invest in desalination could look to Israel as an example. The second and this relates to the reservoirs, is uh, Israel leads the world with very efficient uh, treatment of wastewater and the reuse of that wastewater into agriculture. So you're driving in the Negev and you see those JNF reservoirs, that's not fresh water. Those reservoirs are actually collecting treated wastewater from a wastewater network, and then uh, those farmers then take that wastewater from those reservoirs and use it for irrigation. Um, so wastewater treatment has allowed Israel to develop uh, effective agriculture without having to uh, uh, overextend its, uh, its reliance on dwindling natural, natural uh, water supply. So what, what is your view? Innovation. Sorry, yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, no, sorry, finish your point. Now, I'm just saying, so to summarize, the two pillars where Israel has been able to uh, uh, address very efficiently uh, water scarcity is producing uh, drinking water from desalination and replacing fresh water in agriculture with treated wastewater. Particularly on the desalinization, I think a lot of people do know about that. How efficient a process is it? Is it fairly expensive? What are the kind of environmental costs? How effective actually is it as a a process? So, look, it's not not a straightforward uh, process, that's for sure, and it is expensive. Uh, the average uh, cost of a desalination facility in Israel um, can be anywhere from a quarter to half a billion dollars. 
for the facility. And the only way that these facilities can be uh, built and managed is through a public-private partnership. So Israel is uh, uh, working with private entities uh, in the way in which these facilities are built uh, and operated. Um, as the technology advances, the level of efficiencies are uh, advancing as well. So these days, installation facilities uh, can produce, uh, let's say, from one cubic meter of water, seawater pumped into the facility, around 60% of that gets transferred into uh, fresh drinking water, and the rest of it is discharged back into the sea as a, as a very high salt brine. Um, many people look at the environmental impact of insulation, and, and there are two issues. Uh, one is what happens to the, 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 the marine environment when you have this discharge of brine back into the sea. Uh, and the other issue is that these facilities are quite energy intensive. Um, in terms of the brine discharge into the sea, uh, Israel has seen no long-term adverse environmental impacts along the, along the coast. And this is primarily because these environmental facilities are very heavily regulated by the Environmental Protection Ministry. So every month, for example, they have to pro- provide um, water quality standards and testing of the brine at the point in which it's discharged into the sea and to make sure there's no ecological impacts for uh, aquatic organisms, for example. Uh, the bigger challenge with desalination environmentally and also economically is the energy dependency uh, of these facilities because they do require a lot of energy. Um, and this, of course, means that you have to have uh, a reliable energy supply to, to, to keep these plants uh, operational. Um, and so what's interesting here is there is a very strong connection then between water management and energy management as it comes to the uh, uh, operation of these desalination facilities. Absolutely fascinating. We're talking to Clive Lipchin. He is from the Arava Environmental Institute, and you're listening to 101.9 FM, com. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Now, Clive, I want to pivot slightly on our discussion about sort of the water culture in Israel. You kind of mentioned the two two pillars, the one being desalinization and the other one uh, recycled agriculture water. But I think perhaps a third one, which we could talk about, is also the use of water saving devices, drip irrigation, these sorts of things, also quite a famous thing and also allows less water to be used in the process in general. Can you talk to us about that kind of technology? Yeah, I think you're 100% correct, Benji. I mean, Israel has always, Israel and the Israeli public has always understood the value of water and the importance of saving water. And drip irrigation is a fantastic example of very efficient water demand management in agriculture by basically very accurately providing uh, specific amounts without over-irrigation. Um, and uh, very importantly, in uh, dry desert conditions, to minimize the evaporation of water. So drip irrigation is a phenomenally uh, successful water conservation technology in, 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 in food production. Uh, and don't forget that uh, food production is the largest consumer of water globally. Um, also, Israel um, embarked uh, a few years ago and continues to do so to introduce into uh, households water-saving devices like low-pressure shower heads 
and other types of um, filters that uh, lessen the amount of water that people use, but uh, maintain, for example, with showers, the same level of pressure that people are used to. And what's amazing about this program, these devices were actually provided to homeowners for free by the government. And what's interesting is it's also done almost at birth in the education system. I, I, I remember reading a book on this topic where they said that the, even the children's nursery rhymes in, in Israel encourage uh, sort of a reverence for the water as opposed to, say, in English where they say rain, rain, go away, whereas in Hebrew even the, even the rhymes of the nursery school children sort of encourage water and encourage water saving. So there's also not just a technological aspect but also trying to get it into the the culture of the public discourse that saving water is important. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that's a very, very important issue that people have to become more aware of. It's all pretty well to say you can save water with technology, but at the end of the day, people have to you know, really understand and value water for the scarce resource that it actually is. So education uh, from a very early age to get kids and therefore, of course, to to, uh, to get their parents uh, to understand that, you know, water is not something that we should take for granted. Um, it, it, you know, keeping the tap running when you're washing the dishes, for example, or when you're brushing your teeth, people might say, oh, you know what, how much of a difference can that make? It's not that it's going to make a difference per se. It's about inculcating in people a different, a different, you know, series of values and habits. You know, just like uh, pretty much most of the Western world understands that recycling is a, is a good strategy for solid waste management, um, saving water is the same idea. We really have to get the public uh, to very, very much support uh, policies that the government's trying to implement to get people to value water and to save it and to appreciate it for what it is. Now, we spoke a little bit about the Sea of Galilee and the water that goes in there. Another very famous sea in Israel, or perhaps the other famous sea, is the Dead Sea. And a lot of public pressure, public activism around the fact that the Dead Sea itself is dying. Uh, a few months ago, an uh, international team for the first time swam across the Dead Sea to highlight uh, the problems. Can you give us a bit of a context? Why is the Dead Sea dying? And what can we do to revive it? Right, so, yes. The Dead Sea is probably Israel's and the region's greatest environmental challenge. Um, when I mentioned the National Water Carrier and how this was an amazing uh, infrastructure project that allows Israel today to be relatively water independent, um, there is a downside to that. And the downside is when you take a lake and you convert it into a reservoir, which is in essence what the Sea of Gary is today, it means damming the lakes and preventing water from flowing uh, out of it. And so when the National Water Carrier was built in 64, they built at the southern part of the lake uh, a, a dam called the Begania Dam. And this, in essence, prevented any water flow from the lake down the lower Jordan River into the Dead Sea. Uh, the ecological ramifications of this is that the Dead Sea was denied uh, its fair share of water. And uh, since the 1970s, because of this lack of water entering into the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea has been declining, declining excuse me, um, at an alarming rate of over one meter every year. It's very much an ecological catastrophe. Um, the problem is, uh, what do we do to address this issue? And here, unfortunately, there aren't any uh, simple or, or easy answers, because in essence, the only way to uh, save the Dead Sea 
to turn the water that once entered it from the Lower Jordan River. Uh, that's unlikely to happen because the water is now all spoken for by uh, Israel on the one hand and uh, uh, Jordan uh, on the other hand. Um, so putting water back in the Jordan and, in, and then into their sea is, is unlikely to happen. Um, and so the question is, if the water is not going to return to the Dead Sea as nature intended, what are we going to do? It sort of puts us into context so you can understand the, the depth of the problem. The amount of water that needs to enter the Dead Sea on an annual basis to stabilize the water levels is 50% of Israel's annual water budget every single year. So we need to find a huge amount of water to save the Dead Sea, and we live in a very arid region. So where is this water going to come from? Um, the idea that has been um, debated uh, for many, many years and may or may not see the light of day is the so-called Red Sea to Dead Sea project, where the idea, a very ambitious uh, concept, is to pump Red Sea water up the Arabah Valley into the Dead Sea. Uh, and in essence, that water would be the water that would... Uh, help to stabilize uh, the Dead Sea uh, uh, Basin. This project may actually happen because the other, uh, the other advantage of, of, of this concept is that because you have a, a very a large difference between um, uh, sea level at the Red Sea and minus uh, 400 meters at the Dead Sea, you can generate hydroelectric power by moving the water from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea, and that energy can then be used to power large-scale desalination facilities and to produce additional fresh water for the region. Uh, most of this water will go to Jordan for, uh, for Jordan's uh, water needs. Um, so what's attractive about this idea is essentially trying to combine two issues into one, saving the Dead Sea on the one hand and producing more fresh water via desalination on the other hand. So first of all, just a, a point of clarification, like the Dead Sea is not disappearing because people are making these mud mineral packs or anything like that. It's, it's, a, it's more of a, a water input issue. Absolutely. The Dead Sea, it's very, I mean, you know, uh, there's, no, there's no debate amongst anybody that uh, the fact that the Jordan River no longer flows into Dead Sea, that's the reason the Dead Sea is, is facing the, the crisis that it is. And, and what are the ecological impl- implications? I mean, it's not like anything actually lives in the Dead Sea, right? Right, that's, that's pretty much accurate. But the biggest problem, which was never uh, predicted by anybody, is that as the Dead Sea has receded uh, and exposed literally kilometers of uh, shoreline, uh, where the water once was, we now are seeing this massive phenomenon of sinkholes where the, where the ground is simply collapsing. Uh, <laughs> there are uh, numbers from the Israel Geologic Survey that estimates there are over 10,000 sinkholes in the Dead Sea region. And this is causing massive, uh, not just ecological damage, but huge infrastructure damage, roadways, bridges, um, pipelines, uh, uh, agricultural fields uh, that were once very um, uh, productive uh, around Kibbutz and Gedi, for example, have had to be closed down. Um, uh, beaches where people used to go swimming at the Dead Sea are uh, no longer accessible. Um, so this is probably the biggest problem, is that uh, it's not just that the lake itself is disappearing, uh, the boundaries around the lake are now becoming so dangerous that uh, maybe in the next, you know, five to ten years, most of the density will simply be, you know, uh, off limits to, uh, 
to any kind of uh, economic activity, whether it be tourism or farming uh, or, or other such, uh, such other kinds of uh, uh, activities, um, it may simply be too dangerous to visit the Dead Sea in the future. Well, uh, let's hope that they can fix that. Otherwise, uh, we might need a surge of tourism before that point. Uh, Clive, talk to me also about one of the other aspects of water politics. We kind of started off with Israelis, Jordanians, Palestinians, other people around the world. And uh, water politics, something very, very serious in the West Bank. What are the kind of challenges that happen with water in the West Bank and how it gets distributed and uh, affected? So, first, to understand what's happening in the West Bank, you need to understand where the water comes from. But the West Bank, specifically, uh, uh, its source of water comes from uh, what is called the mountain aquifer system. So, this is groundwater. So, the only way to access this is to buy, is by drilling uh, wells and pumps and pumping the water from, from below ground. Um, the main area of contention between Israelis and Palestinians over this resource is that uh, the Palestinians claim that this is uh, a resource that they have rights to use, given that uh, most of the area of the aquifer uh, lies within the West Bank. Um, Israel uh, has uh, an opposing uh, uh, opinion, which says that uh, part of the aquifer uh, uh, extends west beyond the green line. And Israel has been using this water prior to 1967. Um, what is challenging is that both sides are actually correct. And therefore, uh, you have to find a very creative way to sort of address these two opposing but actually uh, uh, hydrologically correct uh, uh, points of view. The other problem, of course, is that there is an inequality in what it is. Israelis simply use more water than Palestinians. Um, and uh, this is simply, you know, uh, in many ways, uh, to be expected. Israel is a developed economy. Uh, people simply use more water in a developed economy. Uh, Palestinians use less. But the other reasons as well, of course, there are political issues, given that um, many Palestinian populations are not independently able to use water because most of the water resources in the West Bank remains under their control um, of Israel. So for the Palestinians, uh, a major issue for them is to try to achieve sovereignty uh, over water resources in the West Bank that will give them the independence to use the water as they see fit. Um, but it's, it's difficult because the water is shared. And so, you know, Palestinians use a certain amount of water that could impact how much water Israel gets and uses and vice versa. So again, here, there's no real... Uh, unilateral solution. At the end of the day, Israelis and Palestinians have to find a mutually beneficial way to share this uh, uh, resource. Um, there are uh, uh, conversations that go on and uh, projects between the, the parties that happen. Uh, a lot of what I do with, with my work at the Arab Group is to work with Palestinians to try to find mutually beneficial solutions to uh, expanding water supply, to helping Palestinian farmers become more productive with wastewater treatment um, and so on. But I need to, you know, be frank and say it's not simple. Uh, it's a very politically charged issue. Um, the Palestinian narrative, of course, derives from the fact that there are a population under occupation. And so there's an inequality here that you constantly ignore. Um, so you have to be creative, you have to be innovative, 
you have to find ways to work around uh, a lot of these critical issues, which we being a uh, civil society organization uh, has to be honest with ourselves. You know, we are not going to find a peace. We are not going to be the ones that lead to peace between the Palestinians. That's the job of the Israeli government. It's the job of the Palestinian government. But what we can do as civil society is working with people on the ground who can at least improve incrementally water management and people's quality of life in Canada. And that's an essence of what we're trying to do. Well, it's very interesting also from an infrastructural perspective that you were talking about because it also it's not just the water that gets shared, it's also the water pollution. I know that uh, sort of the sewage infrastructure in the West Bank is not as, as developed and so sometimes you end up having Palestinian sewage flowing into uh, the Israeli system and then they, Israelis have to clean it up and send it back to the Palestinians. So it's kind of like you have to be quite cooperative in how you go about sorting the problem out. You you can't actually afford to not talk to one another on an issue like this. Exactly. You're 100% correct, Benji. I mean, the, the, the sewage issue is in one area we do a lot of work. And you're right, uh, Palestinian infrastructure is not at the same level as Israeli infrastructure but at the end of the day, if we don't cooperate, uh, we're all losing. Because that sewage uh, is not going to stay in the West Bank. It will simply flow downhill from the West Bank into Israel, and then it becomes Israel's problem. And Israel cannot simply, you know, unilaterally uh, solve this problem without assisting the Palestinians to improve their sewage treatment capacity. Um, so th- that is one uh, example where... Even with all of Israel's advances in desalination and wastewater treatment and so on, uh, our environment, our shared environment, is, is, is still paying the price in the fact that there isn't yet a political uh, settlement between the parties. And until that time, until there is some kind of settlement, and I'm not going to go into what that settlement should be, but let's say when there is some kind of settlement uh, that resolves the conflict, only then can we really, you know, uh, develop these water resources as they need to be as one hydrological unit shared between two political entities. Now, just before uh, I come to something else which I want to talk to you about, which is the, the issue of wetlands in Israel, uh, this issue of the Palestinians and the Israelis, obviously very, very complicated, but I see that it has become a bit of a propaganda point amongst anti-Israel activists, uh, accusations that Israel stealing water, uh, people referring it to water as a water apartheid, which is something that they like to, uh, I guess, anything to do with Israel. Uh, in your experience, is, is, is this sort of stuff accurate? Well, again, you know, you've got to be very careful. I mean, I said earlier, there is an inequality. There's no question Palestinians use less water. When you, you know, take these, these uh, realities and you manipulate them for a certain political position, then, of course, you're going to try to, you know, make things look either worse or better, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's unfortunate that uh, people are using water to promote a political agenda. Because I can tell you from decades of working uh, in this area and working very closely with Palestinians and Israelis, um, there, is a, there is a shared uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, assessment that uh, there's only one way to solve the problem, that's to find a cooperative mechanism. Um, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to say it's, it's simple. There are some serious uh, problems, but uh, one way, actually, I can give a specific example, is uh, the Iowa Institute has recently embarked on a process called Track 2 
environmental negotiation. And what track series is a society-driven approach to try to promote environmental agreements uh, that are yet to be debated at the level of what's called track one, which is direct government-to-government relations. And at a track two level, there is a lot of cooperation amongst uh, uh, Palestinians and Israelis who jointly solve the, uh, the issue. It's not to say that they have to agree on everything, uh, but, you know, we, we agree at the end of the day that, you know, simply pointing the finger one way or the other, that, that doesn't help anybody. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate that uh, one side or another is, in essence, taking water hostage and using it for political gain, which at the end of the day, nobody benefits from that. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM, chaifm.com. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. We've been speaking to Clive Lipchin, and he's from the Arava Environmental Institute, and we're just talking about water. Where is it? How do you distribute it? How do you recycle it? And can you drink it? Clive, now I want to talk to you a little bit about wetlands and how the thinking of wetlands has evolved in Israel over the years since the establishment of the state. You know, I guess the original Zionists that came, they were interested in planting a lot of alien trees and it was all about draining the swamps to get rid of malaria and make the land habitable. But there's been a bit of a revolution in thinking about how it is that we're addressing these sorts of resources in the society. Can you talk to us a little bit about where Israel is going and what the effects have been on wetland usage? Sure. I just would like to say that um, before Israel was planting, you know, invasive species to drain swamps, uh, <coughs> it was the British that actually introduced these uh, types of practices. So uh, we, we need to give credit to the credit due. A lot of this is happening uh, prior to 1948 by the British mandate authority. So, so we were uh, taking we bad habits of the British and applying them to Yeah, yeah. I mean, you problems. travel around Israel and what you see are lots of eucalyptus. And eucalyptus is an Australian tree that is very good at sucking up water. So the British brought eucalyptus to Israel and all across the Middle East. Um, but yes, you're right. Uh, the early perception uh, was that wetlands were looked at as sort of inhospitable places that should be drained and made habitable. And the, the, the best example of that is the unfortunate draining of the Hula uh, Valley, which was a, a, a massive catastrophe and in the end didn't uh, create uh, or meet the objective that it was created for. Um, the development or, or the rethinking of the appreciation of wetland is that a wetland is really um, a natural biological water filter. Wetland, the good analogy is a wetland functions like your kidney, in that your kidney helps to clean your blood from toxins, eh, and so too does a wetland. It helps to remove eh, organic eh, matter from water and actually makes it cleaner. And the way in which we develop that eh, is that we now use what is called constructed wetlands, which is a, uh, a, a technical process to clean uh, sewage. And uh, there are a number of uh, constructed wetland projects uh, throughout Israel. Uh, we ourselves at the Arava Institute uh, use constructed wetlands as well. And actually, we constructed some of these not only in Israel, but also, you know, back to our previous discussion, a lot of these systems are actually operating in Palestinian communities as well, where they are very efficient uh, at community levels to uh, treat wastewater and allow it to be safely recycled for agriculture or for uh, irrigation of the of landscapes and so on. 
So here we're not really building the classic sort of big circular sewage works. It's more a sort of constructed natural process that the water can seep through to clean it. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, constructed wetlands really ultimately work on a small scale. Um, because they, they actually uh, require quite a large area uh, for not that much water. So constructed wetlands is, is a good solution where the need is to treat small amounts of water is in essence what you're trying to do. They're a great way to integrate water recycling into, into urban, in urban areas. So there are some nice projects in some of the cities in uh, Israel where they actually use those as both an aesthetic uh, feature but there also is uh, a real uh, value. Uh, a good example, if you come to uh, the Tel Aviv University campus and you visit the uh, Porter School for Environmental Studies, the Porter School is the first uh, platinum lead certified building in Israel, and they have within the grounds of the building a constructed wetland that recycles all of the grey water coming from the building and uses it for landscaping around the, around the facility. So this is where uh, wetlands really uh, have a great uh, value, uh, um, and we are using them as well uh, in some of uh, our projects also. Just to go back to the Khula Valley for a moment, uh, after it had been drained, there's actually been a, a push to put it back together again, so to speak. It's now become a big big place for birds. Yes. I mean, the thing is, is that in one sense, uh, Khula was a failure, but it also was a success. Especially... Uh, the early Zionists and early Israelis looked at the Khula as a place that had to be developed and, 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 and changed from something that was uh, uh, alien uh, to something that was uh, habitable for, for, for uh, human settlement. But in the end of the day, we lost a very valuable, uh, ecologically diverse uh, wetland. In the 1990s, we understood the mistake that we made, and there was actually a reflooding of the Khula. This was a project that was called Agmon. And it actually was led also by the, by the JNF. And the reflooding of the Khula uh, allowed for millions of migratory birds uh, that used to fly across Israel and use the Khula as a refueling station uh, to come back to Israel. Uh, and today, of course, Israel is, you know, if you're an ornithologist, then Israel is one of your top destinations to go and see birds. And the Angumon area, the reflooded part of the Khula, one of Israel's most successful ecotourism sites. And every year, millions of birds and millions of people come together basically to look at each other. So uh, in one sense, uh, we learned basically, you know, through hindsight, uh, the value of ecological wetlands. And uh, Antimon is a very, very successful ecological and tourist uh, endeavor. Now, kind of spreading yourself out into the world a little bit, obviously Israel's had to deal with a lot of these water challenges in a very specific context, but a lot of other countries in the world, uh, I know California is always struggling with drought, there's Australia, large parts of Africa, all struggling with this issue, and a lot of work going into trying to assist in other parts of the world. What kind of lessons do you think other countries can and have been taking from Israel in the way that they use their water systems? Well, I would say the way that people should think about water in terms of looking at Israel is what Israel Israel does, Israel takes an integrated approach. In other words, we're not looking on finding one solution. Um, we understand that you need to take many approaches and integrate them effectively. 
And I think we do it quite successfully. We have very efficient technologies like distillation. We have demand management. Uh, uh, we have a very, very efficient government uh, in the sense of water uh, that makes, I think, uh, the right decision on um, who gets water, how much water do they get, where is it allocated, and so on. Um, water is, plays a strong role uh, in the public sector. Uh, actually, the public is getting much more engaged with the water issue. Um, we price water appropriately. Water is not cheap in Israel. People value it because we pay for it. It's we don't expect to get it for free. Um, so I think the, the broad lessons that places like California and definitely South Africa can think about is you have to think about it integratively. And I would say there are, um, there are four basic uh, ways in which you can sum this up, in which Israel is a good example. The first is you need a strong governance sector that makes the right policy. So governance uh, is, 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 is category number one. Uh, the second is water is expensive. People have to understand that there's no such thing as free water. It's simply not realistic. And so water has to be appropriately priced. And so the second uh, category is financing. You've got to have the right financial mechanisms to invest in infrastructure, uh, to uh, recoup the costs from consumers, uh, and so on. So financing is number two. The third category is capacity. Um, you have to build the technical capacity to manage water. Um, you have to build uh, community awareness uh, and so on. So capacity also, of course, involves uh, education. And the fourth category uh, is information. People might not think about this, but you can't manage water unless you have the right data. Uh, water monitoring, for example, uh, understanding water quality, the amounts of water, uh, measuring, monitoring, metering, all of this is essential. So to sum up, there are four elements that, that the world needs to appreciate. And I think Israel does this quite well. And that, again, is governance, financing, capacity, and information. And they all have to be managed integratively together. And on that note, we will come to the end of our new Blue Review. Clive, thank you so much for having been with us and explained to us some of the water challenges and issues and successes that have been going on in Israel. If people want to find out more, where can they get hold of you and see the work that you do? Sure. So firstly, thanks very much, Benji, for having me. And I hope this was uh, of, uh, uh, of value to the uh, listeners. Um, the best way to get hold of me or if people want to find out more is they can visit the website of the Arava Institute, which is a very easy address. It's simply Arava, A-R-A-V-A dot org. Um, and they can find more information uh, from there and, uh, you know, uh, are welcome to uh, access my uh, profile and get my email and so on if they want to be in touch with me directly. Now we've got Clive Lipton from... The Arava Center, thank you so much for having been with us on the new Blue Review. And that brings us to the end of the program for today. As always, we will absolutely value your comments. You can get hold of us on uh, Benji at chai.co.za or you can tweet me, Benji underscore Shulman. That's uh, on Twitter or even the station at chai.fm. That's uh, the Twitter handle. And uh, we will see you next week on the new Blue Review.